Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, December 4th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and we recently talked to some people from the biggest little city in the world, and today we get to talk about a fish from the longest, shortest river in the world. <laughs> talk about the fountain darter. <laughs> And we have two great guests, both from our San Marcos Aquatic Resources Center. Dave Britton is the center director, and Dr. Katie Blackrath is a geneticist and the research lead for our Edwards Aquifer Refugia Program. So very warm welcome to both of you. Hi. Thanks for having us. Okay, so let's get to know this fish a little. So we're in Texas. What would be some dead giveaway clues that we're in the right spot where these fish live? And also, how would we know that we're looking at a fountain darter and not some other fish species? This species is only found in the upper reaches of the San Marcos River and in the Kamal system. And so you'd have to be in San Marcos, Texas or in New Braunfels to even find this species. Um, additionally, you have to be in a spring-fed system. They're highly dependent on the Edwards Aquifer. And uh, they are actually found in kind of like open rocky areas and adjacent to uh, aquatic vegetation. And so if you find yourself in a nice, shallow, clear riverbed in the San Marcos or in New Braunfels, then there's a good chance there's a fountain nerder near you. Okay. And what do they look like? These are tiny little fish, the, about an inch long, not very big. Also, uh, interesting, fun fact about the found otter, they don't have a swim bladder, so they're, they're not pelagic. They're not up in the, in the water column. They're down on the bottom. They like to kind of hug the bottom around the vegetation and gravel and silt. They are sort of an olive color with blotches of down the sides, and they're very small, so if you... If you were to snorkel or stick a mask in the water and look down at the bottom, you might see them and they dart around. Their behavior is indicative of their name. They're pretty cool. We sometimes have them on display at our Aquatic Resources Center. You can see them oh, cool. doing their little activities. They're fun looking little fish. Okay. Why are they called fountain? What does the fountain have to do with <laughs> Probably because of the springs. They're spring related. So if you were to go to Spring Lake where the, where the headwaters of the San Marcos come out, if you Dive down and look at the bottom. You can see water coming up through the sand and the silt, and it, it's it's pretty cool. Oh, okay. Kind of like maybe what you can see, like a fountain underwater. So the darters that I'm used to seeing when I was down in Georgia, they tend to really like these really fast waters, these riffles, these these big runs. It doesn't sound like the type of habitat you're describing. So what is the habitat like where you find the fountain darter? So these guys are... are fairly similar uh, in habitat to other darter species in the sense that they are more benthic. They do associate with gravel habitats and they do like medium flow. How were they first discovered? And these guys have been on the endangered species list for a long time. I'm just kind of curious how they were discovered and how they were put on that list kind of very early on. There's been a lot of study on the fish and the fish systems in both the San Marcos and the Comal River for a very long time. Texas State University, they have a, a very nice aquatic biology program there that's been around for quite some time. And there are some of the earlier papers on the fountain dart were written by people who worked at that station as Texas State. Also, we're very close to UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin, and which was the home of Clark Hubbs, who was a very famous fish biologist. He's deceased now, but Clark was very prolific. He was out and about all over the place, and he helped describe all kinds of species. He did a lot of early work, and so did other people from Texas State on this on this species. Uh, interestingly, um, 
one of the reasons it got on the on the horizon back particularly around the time when we were creating the Endangered Species Act is the fact that back in the 1950s, the flow in the Koval River in New Braunfels stopped. We had a, a drought of record, it was prolonged, and eventually the water just stopped flowing. The flow is required for these organisms. And some of them, I hear, survived through some pools that remained, even though the water wasn't flowing. And then in the 1970s, the population had been very much decimated in the Comal system. It was a separate population. Some conservation biologists reintroduced the fountain dart from the San Marcos system down to Comal. This was 1974, 1975, I believe. And so that's the population that we have now as a result. Endangered Species Act is 1973. Fountain dart was included to an act that was a predecessor to the Endangered Species Act. So this was one of the first fish, or there were several, but uh, this was... Or yeah, the Endangered Species the Act. This yeah. was one of the original species that was listed. Yeah, and it had, because of the, probably because of what happened in the 50s, it had gotten recognition and recognized by not just Fish and Wildlife Service, but the state of Texas and now the IUCN. Yeah. You know, you talk about like looking at formalin and, and preserved fish for this catfish stuff. You lost the Comal River population back in the 50s. And, you know, okay. If I was a student at Texas State and I wanted to go down to the Schlitterbahn, I could hop on I-35 and be down there in 25 minutes. But if I'm a fountain darter and I got to go down the San Marcos and up the Guadalupe, it may as well be a world away, a whole different planet. So, you know, I, I'm not usually one to take the side of the splitters in these arguments, but are there any preserved specimens of the original Comal River population? And has anyone looked into seeing if they actually are the same species or were they different and you repopulated it with these San Marcos fish? That's a good question. They are two distinct systems. And eventually, the San Marcos system ends up with the Guadalupe somewhere way down there, but the founders don't don't go that far. And so does the Comal. The Comal empties into the Guadalupe right there in New Braunfels. So again, it's the shortest river in the United States, I believe. It's not very far. In fact, if you go to Google Maps and you zoom out, you can't even see it. If you can see the city, you can't even see the river hardly. Oh, wow. It's that small. I do know that our center was part of a study that was done a couple of decades ago using microsatellite markers to look at the genetics of the two populations. This was after the extirpation or near extirpation. There were still uh, unique markers in the Comal system that weren't found in the San Marcos system. If we were to redo that today, I think that uh, we'd get a lot better picture. Given the duration in which the San Marcos population was used to reintroduce into the Kamal population, there is probably going to be some evidence of these population divergence in those two, right? These guys only live a couple of years, and so the generation time is fairly short. And so there's going to be a lot of generations in between 2023 from the 1970s. It won't be enough to show that they're distinct species because that's a very short time scale, but there might be unique genetic diversity found now in the Kamal system. Uh, relative to the San Marcos system. So regardless of whether or not the original fountain darter, which to my knowledge morphologically looked the same as the, the San Marcos population as it did in the Kamal system, suggesting that they were the same species, at least with the information we had then, the San Marcos and the Kamal system are, are going to be the same species, but they might be evolutionary significant units that are both may be distinctly preserved just based on the level of diversity that is captured within each of those populations. 
So you had this big drought in the 50s. What are some of the other threats that they're facing today? Drought and water flow is going to be the biggest issue, which has a compounding effect on other impacts. There are other things that could impact these populations, like habitat degradation is one. And so we're in a pretty urban area. And so things like road construction and urban development is going to have an impact on the river system and the aquifer itself. And so water quality, sedimentation, lack of flow due to droughts loss of vegetation and habitat quality, those are all going to be the big impactors on these species. In addition with the continual introduction of invasive species, that is always a possibility of impacting these species as well. What are some of the invasives? Oh man, we're in Texas. <laughs> we have a lot of invasives that are in the San Marcos River and in the Comal River. The San Marcos River in particular uh, runs through Texas State University. There's a lot of students that are on campus and they do have a good aquatic program and they try and teach them, you know, what to do and what not to do. But our scuba diving team finds all kinds of aquarium fish and, mm-hmm. and other sorts of things that are in the, uh, the river. Some of the notable ones are the armored catfish, sometimes called plecos, plecostomus. There's a, a lot of invasive aquatic plants. One of the ones that we've been working on a lot is called cryptocorini. It's a uh, water trumpet. It's a pretty plant. You find them in aquariums. What happens? We believe is that students that have aquariums in their dorms or in their houses or whatever when they're in college, when they get ready to move back home or go somewhere else, get a job, they dump them in the river or they have in the past. And you don't want to kill your organism or whatever. There, there are alternatives to just dumping it in the river. So there are a lot of invasives in the river um, that aren't native there. Basic aquatic vegetation can over or outcompete native vegetation that fountain darters are dependent on. Things like introduced crayfish and shrimp could be predators mm. to fountain darters, seeing as they're benthic. In addition, larger predatory fish like cichlids might also impact on their populations. Another invasive, Melanoides tuberculata is a red rim melanian snail. It's, it's introduced mm. to the river in a lot of places around here. It's one of the one of the notorious invaders. It's a snail that can tolerate all kinds of conditions. It carries a parasite. It's a fluke or a trematode called uh, centrocestus. And centrocestus can infect fish, part of the life cycle, and it definitely infects the fountain garter and limits its ability to be healthy. The trematode has a complex life cycle that goes from fish to another host, usually birds, but they can infect humans as well. And then through defecation or some other mechanism that the parasite life stage is deposited back in the water and it starts all over. Yeah, so that's a big problem. We regularly find centrocystis in fountain garters, and it's an active area oh, of research yeah. at Texas State University. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't dump your stuff. Don't dump your yeah. aquariums, kids. Yeah. And snails in particular are very difficult. Sometimes they're very small and particularly invasive snails can tolerate some pretty harsh conditions. talk about a couple different microendemic species on this show before, notably the devil's hole pupfish. When you talk about an endangered species, sometimes it's been human impacts that have knocked it down and you're trying to bring it back. But sometimes you're dealing with fish that just, they naturally have limited habitats and they're always going to be at risk of extinction. And so sometimes in those cases, people come up with captive populations just as a refuge in case something goes wrong. Is there anything like that for this species? Yeah. So a lot of the species that we work with who are like this term microendemic, microendemic to the San Marcos River and the Kamal system. These are the only places that they're found. These are very small habitat ranges, only a couple of miles. So they're endangered simply because they're 
habitat is so small and at high risk of loss. So we have a program here at the Santa Marcos Resources Center called the Edwards Aquifer Refugia Program. It's part of the Edwards Aquifer Habitat Conservation Plan, which is a very large effort with multiple partners across the area to ensure that the spring waters are flowing, the habitat is conserved for these highly endemic, threatened, endangered species. And uh, the Habitat Conserve, the Edwards Aquifer Refugia Program is a captive assurance population for many priority species that are only found in the San Marcos River in the Kamal system. And so currently we have eight species on station, um, three fully aquatic salamanders, multiple fully aquatic invertebrates. We have the fountain darter in a captive assurance population. We also have Texas wild rice. And this captive assurance population is in place in as a, a kind of a backup, essentially. We hold a certain level or certain number of, of individuals in a captive assurance population or refugia, as we call it, to be this standing stock. And through holding the standing stock, we have five initiatives that we try to master. One is reliable collections of our organisms, safe and secure husbandry of our organisms. We want to be able to make sure that we can keep them in captive assurance populations. We want to understand their propagation. So if we had to propagate any of our organisms, we could do it in captivity. We need to understand their genetics, both in the wild and in the refugia. One, to make sure that we understand how to best and more most responsibly collect our organisms to make sure that the refugia population is reflective of the wild. And also, if we had to do any reintroductions, we could responsibly go back and replicate what the wild population was. And all of this is used to inform our reintroduction strategies. We have another one, a sister refugia, that does the exact same thing at Uvalde National Fish Hatchery, which is in Uvalde, Texas. And they are a backup to our backup or vice versa. And we would be remiss to not mention that the Edwards Aquifer Authority is the one that's paying for all of this. The Edwards Aquifer Authority actually built us a building specifically for this program uh, where we do both research and uh, refuge. That's cool. That's cool. Nice. How, how many darters do you have in your facility? And how oh many are gosh. in the wild? Yeah. That's a great question. You can get some population estimates of how many that are in the wild through some biomonitoring that happens with one of our other partners, BioWest. I don't have a number off the top of my head, but it's in the thousands. Last time I saw it, I think it was a 164,000, somewhere in that ballpark, 164,000 in San Marcos and around 100,000 down in Comal. Yeah. There's okay. a, it's a fairly sized, large population. Wow. Given that they don't live in a yeah. huge area. Yeah. Yeah. They, they like tiny. to cluster together. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they are very That's small. a lot more than I expected. That's okay. In our refugia, we aim to have 500 individuals between both of our facilities. And you said their lifespan's about two years, so that's a constant kind of rotation to yep. keep that? Yep. Okay. We're doing consistent collections to make sure that we have a, a representative captive assurance population. We work with BioWest a lot on that because they do regular biomonitoring. And so to reduce stress of collections and whatnot, we'll actually go out with BioWest and collect the fountain darters that they are counting. Talking about some extreme weather events, you mentioned the drought. You guys had a pretty massive freeze a couple years ago. I'm curious if that affected the darters, affected their spawning, or is the spring a good constant enough temperature that I was able to offset that? Because they live near the headwaters in the springs, the water comes out of the ground at pretty constant temperature, regardless of what the weather is outside. And as long as there's flow, that's not a problem. It's when there's low flow 
that then that can become an issue. So that's one of the things that we have to keep our eyes on. In this particular freeze, we did not notice any major disruption in the founder habitat. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we're not out there um, monitoring them regularly. We're out collecting for our refugee population. BioWest is the entity that's out there doing the monitoring, and they report to the Edwards Aquifer Authority. That All that information is available online because it's endangered and because it's part of the Edwards Aquifer Habitat Conservation Plan. We, the bigger we, all of us are keeping a good eye on what's actually can, happening. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Edwards Aquifer and why it's important to people and fish? The aquifer is basically a, a giant underground spongy lake. It is, it's a limestone system, karst system. It's full of rocks and nooks and crannies. It has cave systems. And there's actually multiple different, I guess you would say strata, of this underground lake. So various parts of the aquifer itself serves different purposes. There is a, a recharge zone. So all the rain that comes across Texas over this recharge zone flows directly into this underground lake. And then there's an artesian zone where a lot of our uh, endemic species, groundwater species are found. And there's also a zone where we actually draw up most of our water. Um, the aquifer is crucial for the um, populations, the human populations in Texas. Uh, San Antonio and Austin both use the aquifer. And all the little towns in between, including San Marcos, are dependent on the aquifer or the rivers of the aquifer supply to actually get our drinking water. And there's fish in that aquifer. We talked to Dean Hendrickson, what, last year about the blind cats, and it's a, it's really neat. This is a big, I mean, this is a deep lake. It's huge. It's a very, yeah. it's one of the largest aquifers, I think. And yeah, there are all, all kinds of organisms that live in the aquifer itself. One of the most notorious is the uh, Texas blind salamander, for example. They're pretty unique looking. Mm-hmm. And we keep those as well. Uh, the found darter doesn't live in the aquifer itself, yeah. but it's dependent upon the flow okay. coming out of the aquifer. Yeah, yeah the, that artesian area that uh, Katie was talking about, there's a fault called the Balcones Fault where the land has shifted and created these really nice uh, springs that have really provided habitat, not just for these organisms, but for humans for a very long time. This is are the longest inhabited places in North America, I believe, because of the, the availability of the springs. The water is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's crystal clear. The aquifer is a very important resource, right, for everybody, not just for these organisms, but for humans as well. And it's not likely that the humans are going to go away, particularly in San Antonio and Austin. We're getting more and more people as we go. So it's a challenge. It's going to continue to be a challenge. But we have planned, and I think we're doing a good job with our partners to protect these organisms. And I hope to see it continue. Okay, it's that time. This is Minute with Maria. Maria is joining us again from Chogayan Lands in Western Alaska and is helping us elevate Indigenous voices and perspectives on the show. Angang, Katrina, thanks again for having me. Okay, listening to the two guests talk about the various reasons why this fountain data has declined, are there any cross-cutting themes you're starting to notice across episodes? Do any of these threats worry you when you think about Alaska's fish and their habitats? Yeah, absolutely. I think that over the last few episodes, I feel like drought is really detrimental to their populations and trying to combat ways to let the fish survive is really important because in Alaska, we don't really see it up here, so we're far removed from it. But I understand the importance of having an aquifer, for instance, so that these fish can survive. 
Yeah, and I don't think Alaska is really immune to some of these things, some of these things like invasive species and climate change and just these kind of changes we're starting to see. Yeah, I definitely feel the effects of the climate change starting to hit Alaska as well. We're not as far removed from it as I'd like to think that we are, but listening to this really makes it more real for me. And it's really important to understand the droughts and the themes of what's happening down in the lower 48. Yeah, totally. So we're talking about the Edwards Aquifer and how it's so important to folks living in this area of Texas. What are some similarities you can draw with water in Alaska and it's important to people living here and the fish that are here? I do know that if you don't have that backup reservoir for the fish to survive and thrive, then how is it going to how is the fish going to live? How is the fish going to be able to thrive in this environment. And even though it's a little fish that we're talking about, it's so important that this fish doesn't go away because if that fish goes away, then what happens to the rest of the ecology under the water? Yeah, they're like a, a kind of a symbol, a very small symbol of yeah, what's on the horizon and what we should be watching for. You got to look out for this little fountain darter fish because you never know what's <laughs> going to happen. Yeah. Okay, good chatting with you. All right, thanks for having me. Kagasakang. Texas is a great state. We can all agree. And it's been drawn in a lot. Alaska, but it's not as big, but we're trying. Anyhow, it's drawn in a lot of people, notably during the pandemic when people could move, moving in from California, moving all in from all over the country. And of course, water being down in the desert is a limited resource. Have you seen in the last couple of years with this influx of population, human population, any stresses put on the aquifer? We have, but uh, they're managed very well. Basically, when the Edwards Aquifer Authority was created, that was the point, was to manage the aquifer. As we move forward with economic development, a lot of people coming in, and particularly in the San Antonio and Austin area, it's you're seeing some peak influx of folks. It's amazing. I'm originally from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is a couple hundred miles up the highway, but I moved down here about six, seven years ago, and I've watched this place grow like crazy. And they're doing a very good job, I believe, monitoring the system and controlling the flow such that this doesn't become a problem. We have contingencies in place that are in the Habitat Conservation Plan in case it gets to the point where impacts are actually seen. One of those, one of those contingencies is what we call salvage. If it got to the point where the flow was so low that the, the populations were jeopardized, we would actually go out and collect fountain darters, as, as many as we could house in our refugee populations and hold them until situation was reversed or restored. That's one of the purposes. And we have that capability both here and at Uvalde National Fish Hatchery. I'd like to l- know a little bit more about the Aquatic Resources Center. Fish and Wildlife is a unique organization. We've got our refuges, we've got hatcheries, we've got different offices. I'm just curious if you could give us a, a quick summary of what you do there. Yeah, as you just pointed out, we've got a lot of different divisions or parts of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And obviously, to most people, the most obvious is the is the National Wildlife Refuge System because people can show up and they can enjoy that and organisms on those refuges are protected. And that's a big win for everybody. Uh, in addition to those, we have a lot of other divisions. One of the other ones is our regulatory branch, which is the Ecological Services Branch. Those are the folks that deal with the Endangered Species Act and listing of species and habitat conservation plans and species assessments and biological opinions, those sorts of things. Another branch, much smaller than the other two, are the Fisheries and Aquatic Conservation Branch. 
used to just be fisheries. The best one. No. The best. <laughs> we all have fish, right? It's fish and aquatic conservation. We focus mainly on aquatic conservation. Most of the, the critters that we have here on our station are not fish. Uh, we have freshwater mussels, we have toads, we have salamanders, we have invertebrates, like crustaceans and insects and those sorts of things. But we do have the fountain daughter. That's our fish. We are one of seven technology centers, fish technology centers that are throughout the country. Region two, which is the Southwest region, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Arizona, actually has two. We have another one, the Southwestern Native Aquatic Resources and Recovery Center. That's in Dexter, New Mexico. And we work with them a lot uh, on various issues. Originally, except this particular station that I'm at now, the San Marcos Aquatic Resources Center, was a fish hatchery, national fish hatchery. We switched from being a fish hatchery into what we call a technology center, where we focused on research around the 80s or so, 1980s. Most of what we do now is, involves the Endangered Species Act and endemic species in protection and conserving aquatic species that, that are associated with threats. Awesome. And is this a public facility and people come and see the fountain yes. darter there? Yeah, okay. They can. They should. We ask them to let us know before they're coming. So call Dave Britton. Yeah, you call me. <laughs> Historically, the Comal River was had some industrial uses, mills, cotton gin, stuff like that. Today, it seems like there's mainly recreation, tubers, people hanging out. Is that a net positive or negative for the species? Because on the one hand, use can lead to degradation. But on the other hand, getting people out there, it actually puts them in contact directly with these habitats and potentially with these fish and might be able to help raise awareness and uh, appreciation for these species in these places. Yes, you bring up a very good point. One of the problems, or could be a problem, is recreation versus conservation. Sometimes those butt heads, right? Ideally, probably the best situation if you were only focused on conservation would be for the humans to just disappear and leave the animals alone. That's not reality. That's not going to happen, particularly in, in areas where we have other needs, water being a, a predominant one, right? Our partners are very concerned about that very issue. Fish and Wildlife is concerned about that very issue. We've all come together over the last few decades to make sure that we are doing what we need to do in order to keep this place safe, not just in the Kamal River, but in the San Marcos River. As you pointed out, tubing, it's a big deal in San Marcos River. It's a big deal in the Kamal River. There are protections in place in order to make sure that the habitat and the organisms are not being affected. And there are mechanisms in place to adjust that if necessary. But so far, that hasn't been necessary because uh, we're doing a good job at supporting these populations. So in terms of calls to action, we've talked about not releasing your aquarium pets. Are there any best practices there? Any other things folks can be thinking about as they're coexisting with these fish and with these waterways? Just ways to be right by the environment here? So far as your aquarium pets, if you find yourself in a situation where you have to get rid of your fish tank, contact your local pet source. Oftentimes they will take back some of your aquatic pets and plants. But you can always find a friend who's looking for a fish tank. There's lots of people looking for fish tanks and they're expensive to start up, right? And so maybe you can gift your fish tank to somebody else. But when it comes to recreation and using these natural resources, it is always going to be a balance between maintaining the habitat for the species that live at those river reaches and the habitat around it, but also there's always going to be a human demand there too. By all means, please enjoy your natural resources. It's wonderful to be outside to enjoy these spring-fed rivers, uh, especially in Texas heat, um, but be mindful of what you're doing in that river. There's plenty of Texas wild rice in the San Marcos River, but 
if it's trampled, it gets dislodged, it runs downstream, and it, it's gone because once it exits that two-mile stretch of the San Marcos, there's no habitat for it. So stay out of aquatic vegetation where you might be disrupting native species that are housing endemic, endangered, or threatened species. If you're in Texas wild rice beds, you could be actively destroying an endangered species. Make sure you pick up all of your garbage and, and make sure you're not dumping in the river itself. And then for aquifer quality and health, there's don't dump your chemicals down the, the, your drains, your storm drains, your sink. Use proper chemical disposal methods. So you're talking about the importance of this vegetation too. It's important for these darters as well, right? Yeah. So darters, they do tend to associate more with kind of gravelly habitats, but when they do spawn there, they attach their eggs to aquatic vegetation and sticks and leaves. And so once you're disturbing this habitat, you are disturbing their breeding grounds and their nurseries. A lot of small fish, fry, rely on vegetation for coverage and protection for predators. And by disrupting this vegetation, you're actively destroying their nurseries and, and disrupting breeding grounds. That's probably something worth considering, too, for people. We're talking about this endangered species that lives in these very local habitats. But talking about in general, if you want to promote a good fishery for people who are interested in fishing and stuff like that, you don't want to remove all of the aquatic vegetation because that is important habitat. Very much so. Yeah, the vegetation will help keep the the, the sediment low and keep the, the, the rivers clean and the, the gravel from being sediment loaded. And guy like you pointed out, it's not just the fountain darters that are using this vegetation as nursery and breeding grounds. It's a lot of our native fish and sport fish. And this invertebrate species that these fish rely on. One of them is the riffle beetle, uh, mm -hmm. which is also endemic and endangered to these waters. And they rely on the leaves that fall from the riparian area, the, the trees that grow along the banks. And they have particular interests in certain species of trees. Oh, man. And Yes, it's it's all interlinked. Yeah, it's this little web. Does Texas have any other darter species? Yes, we do. We have green throat darter, which is the one that pops up on top of my head. They look very similar to fountain darters, but they are bigger. When we're out collecting for fountain darters, we look particularly for the splotching pattern along their lateral line. Green darters will have a solid stripe versus fountain darters have more of these spotty, blotchy patches. So they co-occur in the same area? Yes, they do. Oh. The Kamal system, they do. There's so many darters are so many hard darters. to keep track of. <laughs> they all have like colors in their name and I can't, and there's just different. But okay. I'm from Georgia. I fully oh, know. Yeah, the okay. Darters. The struggle is real. <laughs> I know it. What would be an ideal future for these fish in your perspective? Just moving forward, what would you like to see? What would be really great news with this fish? Uh, as far as I know, the population is, is stable. It uh, is numerous. Um, we pay particular attention to what species of native plant are available and at what density is in the rivers. And so as long as we are maintaining responsible water usage and we're ensuring that the river is flowing via the Edwards Aquifer and that invasive species aren't overtaking native populations of, of aquatic vegetation, then we're holding a steady for the species. As far as the captive assurance population, we collect them reliably. We know where they're at. We know when they're around, when the best time to collect them is. We can breed them like crazy in captivity. They are an okay. easy captive breeder. Awesome. Yeah. We know that returning them to the places we got them is significant. One of the things we want to do look at is a more in-depth assessment of their genetic diversity in the wild, especially given that we have reintroduced the Marcus populations into the Kamal system. But yeah, these guys are, they're bone strong. That's good news. Why should people care about this fish both in Texas and outside of Texas? 
Oh, one, this fish is only found in this one location, and it, it's special that it exists at all. In, in, in addition, any of these species that are highly endemic to the San Marcos River and the Kamal system, and the Edwards Aquifer at all, they have a hugely interesting geological evolutionary history. And there's a lot of marine species relics associated with the Edwards Aquifer, and we see some really interesting, like, critters who live here that are just reminiscent of really old marine cool. weird deep sea critters yeah but why should we care about fountain darter or really any species that lives here one it is special that it even exists but also in the health and the presence of the species that live here are direct indicators of the health of the Edwards aquifer which we are all dependent on for our drinking water in this area and so if these species are happy and thriving then we know that uh, we have reliable and clean, healthy water for us to use too. Normally, when I have that question asked, it's usually not about the darter. It's about the invertebrates that we protect. A lot of them are smaller than a grain of rice. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know what they look like. And if you tried to show them, they wouldn't really be able to see much. It's just a speck and they're endemic, just like the fountain darters are. The question comes up just as you asked, why should I care about this? It's all part of a big web, right? And the fountain darter, just like the the Comal ripple beetle, are part of a giant web of uh, of an ecosystem that took many years to evolve, and it's special, uh, just like each of us are. Asking the question uh-huh. about a species, why is it special, is not special? different to me than asking, <laughs> why is your grandmother special? We, what do we need her for? Awesome. Very nice having both of you on. Yeah, enjoy talking about them. Appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks for great. having us. Okay, get out there and enjoy all the fish, particularly the darters and the fountain darter. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. If you've ever heard of Aquarina Springs, but if you've ever seen that movie Piranha, it was filmed there back in the, oh. I think it was in the late seventies or eighties. Oh. It's a horrible movie. I shouldn't say it's, it's a, it's an interesting oh, movie. It's a wonderful movie. No. Wonderful <laughs> movie. But you can get an idea of what used to be there.